PFAS, P-F-A-S, sometimes called forever chemicals, and more properly known as per- and polyfluorochil substances, are a family of chemicals that are primarily used to make things resistant to stains or disallowing anything from sticking to them. They're good at keeping stuff from adhering to whatever it is they're applied to, basically, whether we're talking about fabrics or non-stick frying pans. These substances have been in the news here and there since their original deployment across a range of product types in the 1940s. But because they were mostly seen as a sort of wonder material, one of many developed and deployed around the middle of the century, when they were talked about at all, it was usually with a sort of awe and marvel. These things solved a lot of consumer problems and were used in various shapes and iterations for a variety of use cases by some of the biggest, wealthiest, and most job-creating companies in the United States, including DuPont and 3M. These chemicals were also broadly thought to be inert, non-reactive in ways that matter to biological entities, and the concentrations in which they were found in nature and in the blood of workers making them were considered to be far below toxic or cancer-causing levels, as tested in animals. But, and this is a big but, because of the nature of these chemicals, basically being ultra-resilient and long-lasting, which is part of what gives them their non-stick and non-stain properties, they just cause other stuff that might break them down to flow past them and bounce right off, instead of interacting with them in depleting, degrading ways, hence that label, forever chemicals. Because of that nature, they also stick around a long time in ecosystems and in plants, animals, and humans. That means that although the amount of PFAS we take into our bodies might be safely in the non-toxic, non-carcinogenic range for a period of time, the volume of these substances tends to build up and accumulate. Their half-life, the period of time it takes for us to process half of the total amount of the PFAS in our bodies so that they're moved out of our bodies, is something like four to five years. So we pile on more and more of these things, and over time, we can accumulate enough of them to actually cause some harm. The research is still rolling in on this, and a lot of our knowledge about what these things do to us at this scale is pretty new, but exposure to PFAS has already been substantially linked to cancers, weight gain, weakened immune systems, liver damage, decreased fertility, an increased risk of asthma and thyroid disease, and a frankly worrying portfolio of other issues as well. Additionally worrying is that there are more than 4,000 different types of PFAS in use, and the companies using them regularly sub in new ones for old ones after those old ones accumulate too much legal heat and attention. When the lawsuits start to roll in, the companies put out press releases saying that they will stop using that specific chemical and then quietly replace it with another similar chemical from this category behind the scenes, until that new one also accumulates enough evidence to cause them problems, at which point they will do the same thing again and again and again. Global regulatory bodies are finally beginning to take some action on this chemical category, but movement has been sluggish, and a lot of the most impactful changes have been the consequence of lawsuits, particularly those that cost companies making these substances a lot of money. 
One recent lawsuit in Florida saw chemical company 3M sued by the city of Stewart, and it's looking like that suit might be settled for upwards of a billion dollars. If it's anything close to the 1.19 billion, three major chemical companies agreed to pay out for contaminating U.S. public water systems with PFAS. 3M also recently announced that it would stop producing PFAS entirely by 2025, citing the increasing number of lawsuits and heightened regulatory scrutiny attached to that segment of the industry. There's a good chance the $10 billion or so they are likely to pay out as part of another deal with U.S. cities and towns to resolve a bundle of lawsuits it's facing played a role in this decision. What I'd like to talk about today is another invisible-to-us contaminant that's causing all sorts of health and environmental damage, and which seems contra to the case of PFAS, which seem to be headed toward phase-out, even if a slow phase-out, seems likely to get a lot worse before it starts to get better. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. As of the day I'm recording this, there are about 435 wildfires burning across Canada, forcing fresh evacuations in British Columbia alongside existing evacuation orders in Alberta and Quebec. Other governments have sent firefighters and firefighting resources to Canada to help them tackle this issue, in part because these fires are just incredibly destructive, killing gobs of wildlife and destroying a lot of ecosystems and infrastructure. But these fires are also menacing fossil fuel-related assets in Alberta, and this potential for damage to oil and gas-producing infrastructure and pipelines has caused a curtailing of output from the region which has impacted global energy prices and made a lot of governments nervous, which has served as additional incentive for the U.S. and other friendly governments to help get things back on track and under control. The U.S. Northeast in particular has been suffering from the effects of high winds carrying wildfire smoke south and east into their airspace. The net impact of this has been substantial, leading to canceled flights due to low visibility, the postponement of major sporting events, and warnings issued from government entities to avoid exerting oneself outdoors and to stay inside if possible. Many schools were closed and businesses either operated at reduced capacity or shuttered for a few days because of potential health concerns related to this cloud of wildfire smoke that encompassed some of the world's largest and most influential cities, New York City and Washington, D.C., among them. More than 128 million Americans were under some kind of air quality alert on a single day because of these wildfires. And those government warnings were not overreactions. Air quality conditions reached record hazardous levels in Philadelphia and D.C., among other cities in the region, which means sensitive groups, folks who are older, have vulnerable immune systems, have asthma, things like that, are at significant risk of some kind of serious cardiovascular event. Hospital admissions popped as a consequence of folks either not abiding by these advisories, not being able to because of work or other responsibilities, or because they tried, but avoiding or going without air is not easy, and not everyone has filtration and ventilation systems at home or wherever they're spending a good deal of their time. Processing Wildfire-tainted air is tricky, too, even if you have COVID-era masks and at-home air filters, because it contains an array of particulates that are just a beast to deal with and which are potentially quite dangerous to one's body if inhaled or otherwise absorbed. 
Particulates in the air come in different compositions and sizes, ranging from PM10, which are coarser, larger particles, large for ultra-small particles at least, that are 10 micrometers and smaller, and they generally land somewhere on the surface of our airways and lungs when inhaled, which means they tend to be more clearable by our immune systems and other biological maintenance processes. It's not ideal, but it's a bit like a thick layer of dust across our internal breathing apparatuses. Messy and cloggy and not good, but also not a permanent sort of damage. PM2.5 particulates, on the other hand, are about a fourth the size of PM10 particulates, 2.5 micrometers and smaller. And for comparison, the average human hair is about 70 micrometers across. So a human hair will generally be about 30 times thicker, 30 times wider than the largest PM2.5 particulate. These are very, very small bits of matter. Because they're so small, these PM2.5 particulates are more likely to find their way past our skin and organ barriers and into deeper parts of our lungs and tissues and airways. That deeper embedding means they can stick around for longer, avoid our immune systems and other particle-clearing systems, and can accumulate over time, in some cases triggering chronic conditions, because they wreak a sort of havoc that our bodies don't understand and cannot locate the source of, and because they can build and build new layers adding to existing hidden little pockets of them. Over time, the problem can get worse and worse and worse. Short-term exposure to even the larger type, PM10, has been associated with worsening asthma and pulmonary diseases, and in some cases it can lead to hospitalization for folks with serious allergies or weakened immune systems. Long-term exposure to PM2.5 particles has been linked to premature death in people of all ages and health conditions, but especially folks who already have chronic conditions or issues with their hearts or lungs or breathing. And there's even evidence it can mess with our ability to think, to make decisions, and to communicate properly. We're still learning about this, and the research is fairly scattered and incomplete, but there's evidence that particulate matter, especially but not exclusively PM2.5 particulate matter, can make umpires at baseball games make more bad calls, can cause chess players to make more bad moves, can cause British MPs to speak at a lower grade level reducing the quality of their speech by around 3.1%, which has the impact of dropping their vocabulary by somewhere between 3.6 and 6.5 and months of education, depending on the difficulty of the speaking tasks they are engaged in. And it can also impact economic productivity, leading stock traders to make worse decisions and employees at pair-packing facilities, which were the subject of one such study, to operate at reduced efficiency. One figure from that pair-packing study actually suggests that the reduction in air pollution in the U.S. from 1999 to 2008, especially PM2.5 related pollution, may have generated something like $19.5 billion in labor cost savings because folks are so much more productive in terms of how they work, the choices they make, and in terms of simply showing up to work because they feel better and more alert and healthy more of the time when they're not inhaling a bunch of these types of particulates all day every day. These particulates, both of the PM10 and PM2.5 variety, have been on the decrease across most of the wealthy world for decades, as many of the activities and facilities associated with their continuous and widespread creation have been relocated elsewhere. There are still pockets of manufacturing 
that spill these pollutants into the air, of course, alongside smaller scale activities that can generate them at work or home. But those are mostly limited regional small scale effects. And much of the US, Europe, and similarly rich and further enriching countries have been pushing those polluting activities overseas and benefiting from that process of offshoring mightily in terms of relocating all sorts of emissions related problems. This offshoring was partially a financial choice, as you can pay workers less overseas to do the same labor, which saves the relevant companies money. But it's also often a regulatory choice. Entities like the U.S.'s Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, started really cracking down on these sorts of emissions and pollution. And that's been the primary forcing function behind the cleanup of U.S. rivers and lakes, the decontamination of groundwater, the revitalization of ecosystems, all sorts of quality of life and quality of environment benefits, including the cleanup of what was previously just incredibly smoggy, perpetually particulate-ridden air of the sort that our grandparents, just a few generations older than young people today, would have taken for granted. All of that forced companies overseas because they can get away with more in terms of emissions and pollution in many other parts of the world right now. Those nations that have benefited economically from taking this type of work off the hands of even wealthier nations have often suffered from the same sort of air that plagued most of the industrialized world until relatively recently. That smog going on to shape everyday life for locals and massively impacting the health of folks who were born into these now perpetually hazy regions or who work in industries that maintain a cloudy radius of horrible air around their facilities because of the nature of the materials they work with or the processing that they do. All of which is to say, New York and Washington, D.C. suffered the worst ever air quality on record at the beginning of June 2023 as a result of this wildfire smoke wafting down across the Canada-U.S. border and hanging out in American skies for a few days. And it was truly bad compared to the usual quality of air in these cities in the 21st century, but not unusual for cities around the world. India, in particular, has a whole lot of cities that suffer from perpetual clouds of PM 2.5 laden smoke and haze, many with annual mean PM 2.5 concentrations of 138 to 173 as of 2016, which puts them squarely in the unhealthy air quality range which is dangerous for sensitive groups for even short periods of exposure. But again, these sorts of ultra-tiny particles can also accumulate in our bodies over time, which means more people become part of those sensitive groups, and more people more of the time suffer those cognitive issues alongside all the health-related ones. In recent years, the air quality rankings have shifted a bit to include more of Southeast Asia, as manufacturing has started to move from increasingly wealthy China into areas like Vietnam and Bangladesh. More development of a certain type at a certain wealth level tends to inflame these air-related issues. We've also seen isolated problems like Canada's wildfires more frequently becoming issues of international concern because pollution does not respect national borders. As of the day I'm recording this, for instance, Birmingham in the UK has the worst air quality of any city in the world, according to IQ Air, with an air quality index rating of 180, an index that roughly correlates with the concentration of air pollution of concerning types in a particular region at a given moment. 
And that is primarily, but not exclusively, the consequence of all that wafting wildfire smoke from Canada traveling across the ocean. According to this ranking model, anything above 100 is not ideal for human health. And though there are parts of the world that stay between 0 and 100, many cities pop up above 100 for short periods of time, during rush hour, when traffic is bad, for instance, or when weather conditions trap pollution in a region for longer periods than usual due to air pressure variations, maybe. And that allows more pollution to concentrate in that area rather than dispersing as it typically would. Some areas, though, in usually poorer but growing slowly wealthier because of that new development, those newly imported manufacturing jobs, in those portions of the world, they suffer higher than 100 air quality index levels essentially every day. And in some cases far higher than that, above 150 in the unhealthy for everyone range. In other words, this is an issue that blows people's minds when it hits the wealthy world because folks in these areas who can usually walk around New York City or Washington, D.C. relatively unaffected by the moderate level of pollution in the air feel severely obstructed and wheezy and not great as a consequence of this level of pollution. It often looks gross and terrifying and can make folks feel generally unwell, and it can exacerbate other societal and personal health and psychological related issues. And it stands out because it is such a contrast from the way things typically are. For folks in other parts of the world, though, this is their every day. This is not surprising. They seldom get to experience non-contaminated, non-wheezy, non-sad-looking skies during parts of the year. And depleted energy levels and everything else, these are all just aspects of their life. So the means for comparison is not really there. Now there is a chance that more exposure to these sorts of issues for the wealthier world, which on average has more of an opportunity to do something about some of the climate-related problems that are making wildfires more common and intense, and which are perpetuating and amplifying the industry-related inequities and concerns that stoke some of the same issues in other parts of the world, there's a chance that more exposure to these consequences, these conditions, will increase empathy and sympathy for those living elsewhere who have to deal with it basically every day. And while it could take some time before that sort of impact really hits home and becomes action, current prognostications from experts in the weather and wildfire and ecological fields suggest that they could soon have more opportunity to get familiar with these sorts of days, as wildfires and other disasters are becoming more common and their impacts do not tend to be limited to just their country or city of origin. I'd like to recommend today is called The Little Book of Valuation, How to Value a Company, Pick a Stock, and Profit by Aswath Damodaran. This book is exactly what it says on the tin. It is a book about different ways to value a company. And I wanted to pick this up not because I wanted to go out and value a bunch of stocks and try my hand at trading more than I already have, but because I know just enough about this field to know that there's tons I don't know. And I wanted to get into some of the nuts and bolts of the more intricate methods of valuing a company above and beyond the superficial methods and the templated methods that I've seen elsewhere to see how folks really get into the nitty gritty and put actual tangible numbers on things. And then over time, come to develop their method to get it more and more accurate, testing and refining, testing and refining. 
Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you because you want to value stocks for trading or because you just want to better understand how this system works and how people do it and how this industry is set up, consider picking up a copy of The Little Book of Valuation by Aswath Damodaran. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other news-focused podcast, One Sentence News, wherever you get your pods or at onesentencenews.com. And please feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.